Hello, it's Basha Cummings here. I'm an editor at Tortoise, which is the home of Sweet Bobby, Hoaxed and many more award-winning investigative podcasts. I'm here to tell you about Tortoise Investigates, where we curate the best of our chart-topping investigations in one place. Everything from extraordinary tales of deception to a suspicious killing to one mother's decades-long fight with the police. Just search for Tortoise Investigates wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He was very scared. He was very scared. He gave me all his passwords to all his accounts just in case. And that's when I started to get very anxious. It's Friday, the 26th of March. Contact from inside the Amarula Hotel has been cut. Nick, Wes, Adrian, Alfredo and Asan, they're all getting into cars. It takes 55 people to going to try and speed out the hotel past the insurgents to safety. Can we go as a kid? Back in the UK, Tori Hickson, Nick's partner, was in the dark about what was happening. All she could do was wait. There was so little information making its way out of Palmer, such scant details that she was searching frantically anywhere she could for some news. And on Twitter, she read that the convoy had been hit. I was so fucking angry that someone could put something like that on Twitter when there's hundreds of people not knowing. Nick was in the last car of the convoy to leave the Amarula. My colleague was driving, I was in the passenger seat, and it all just happened so quickly. You know, suddenly everyone was driving off. They're heading in the direction of the quarry too, like Wes and his brother Adrian. But as they leave, they realise that the security guards, the ones who had opened the gate to the convoy, have been left behind. And so they stop so that the men can run up and clamber in. By now, they're separated from the main convoy. I mean, we just didn't expect an attack that soon. It's just naive, you don't... I mean, we're not army people, so we didn't anticipate just quite how bad it could be. We just got past the airstrip. So it's a kilometre from the hotel. These two guys just stepped out from the right-hand side of the bush and started shooting at us. And those are the two that Wesley... Well, I don't know how many shot at him, but those, that was the first ambush. And I said to you know my driver, just put foot, you know, let's drive straight at them. And the car just flooded and bogged down because of this fuel problem we had. So he jammed on the brakes, and I mean, I just don't know how we weren't hit. I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to Episode 3 of Left to Die, Escape from the Amarula. 
Previously, in episode two, we heard the harrowing story of what happened to Wesley and his brother Adrian. In this episode, Nick's torturous escape and the question that lies in the dust of this brutal attack. Who really abandoned them? Like with every car ahead of them, Nick's vehicle was hit by an ambush almost immediately. And the bullets were cracking past us. With rifles like that, you actually only really hear the supersonic crack as it comes over you or next to you. So Niraj put it in reverse and we try to go back, but it, we just weren't going quick enough and these guys were advancing, running towards us. At that stage, they were probably about 60 metres away from us. And at the time of the attack in March, news reports suggested that Nick had used that ancient AK-47 recovered by Adrian to kill two insurgents. But that wasn't the case. The gun didn't work. It had seized up. After all the effort that had gone to recover it, it was useless. Just a symbol and nothing more. We decided to get out of the car and we ran up this embankment. We were clambering up. Niraj and myself and the one security guard, we were together. The other guys ran in other directions, which we've only sort of pieced together subsequently. And some of them only eventually got back two weeks later. They hid in the bush for two weeks. And our accountant and Nell, he didn't make it. I think he was killed there. So we were clambering up this embankment and the bullets were cracking past us and I got over the embankment. I had a clear shot at both of them. And the same thing, click, rack the gun, click. But then it was evident this thing just wasn't going to work. But we held on to the gun and we got into this gully. And Niraj had fallen and dislocated his, his elbow quite badly. And I had a white T-shirt on, which I took off because I thought it's, you know, it just makes me even more visible. So we were in this gully next to the runway. But we had to make it across this runway. It's about 100, 120 metres of open ground. And that's where I think we, we stood the best chance of getting hit. So we said, OK, look, we've got to make a run for it. And as we ran, you know, they were shooting at us. It's just a miracle we didn't get hit. You know, the, the bullets were flying so close to us that you know, I thought it's just any second now we're going to feel the burn or things are just going to go black. Nick, his colleague Niraj Ramligan and a Mozambican security guard managed to make it to the other side. They crawled into the undergrowth surrounded by insurgents who had just fired at them. These were the most terrifying hours of his life, Nick said. They were still walking up and down the runway looking for people and we heard intermittent shots very close by. And I think that's when Anel was killed. And they'd obviously shot, you know, three or four other people. And we thought, you know, if they come through the bush, it wasn't thick enough, they would they would see us very easily. It was just trying to get through that time, you know, sort of one minute at a time. My biggest worry was thinking, how would my children and my partner come to terms with the fact that I died and died in that manner, you know? We're wondering if it would be quick or, you know, would they, would they drag it out like they have with killing locals, you know? So 
eventually we heard the car start up and they honked the hooter and then drove off. We didn't. We waited till it was dark. You know, the best route seemed for us to head west up into, there was like this long hill. By now, Nick was half naked. Niraj, his colleague, was in agony. He dislocated his elbow in the escape from the car. They hadn't eaten anything since Wednesday afternoon, two days before. The security guard we were with stumbled across some wild watermelons, picked two of them up, carried them, and sort of half an hour into the walk, we stopped, he broke them open and we shared them. It was a full moon, not ideal for taking cover. They reached the crest of a hill and crawled into these long green grasses and beyond those into dense cashew nut and mango trees which had these thick shrubs beneath them. There they could rest, hidden. Thousands of other civilians from across the town had done the same thing. So the three of us in a huddle together just to keep warm for the night. Um, and it was a terrible night you know, sleeping without wearing much, you know, on the hard ground. And, you know, just wondering then if, if anyone was out looking for us. And just worrying because, you know, nobody knew where we were. And we could have headed in any direction or we could have been dead on the side of the runway. By now, at least seven people in the convoy had been killed, including Adrian Nell. But some Mozambicans who were caught up in the ambush said that that number could be even higher. And some of this information was now starting to filter out into the world and to Tory. We heard quite quickly that not all the cars had made it. We didn't know which cars had. We didn't know who was in which cars. Then we heard that something like, I think there was 16 or 17 vehicles. And I think only, you know, less than 10 made it. And that was just... I can't explain to you what that feels like, not to know, you know, just not to know. Other things were becoming clear too. There were reports that soldiers had been fleeing in the face of the insurgents, that they had just abandoned their positions and ran. The place that was protected, where the army hadn't fled, was the multi-billion dollar Total compound to the south of Parma, where hundreds of civilians were now gathering at the gates and begging to be let in. Much of the town was now on fire, and around 50 civilians had been decapitated or shot. Reading through scattered news reports from that moment, now three months later, you can start to piece together the bigger picture beyond what was happening at the Amarula. And it's clear that this was a betrayal on an industrial scale. The government was nowhere to be seen. A military spokesman said seven died in the ambush, that dozens were dead in all. Though Mozambican troops have been accused of failing to engage the jihadis for several days. Total, we know, allegedly refused to refuel helicopters rescuing civilians. And Total themselves were late to help with evacuations, chartering a ferry which carried around 1,200 people to the state capital, mostly its own employees, and another a week after the attack with other civilians. But the rest, the tens of thousands of others, they were, it seems, no one's responsibility. I've spoken to mothers who saw their sons being killed. I have spoken to, to mothers who, who lost their babies on their way to safety. 
I've spoken to mothers who... Zenaida Machado from Human Rights Watch has been interviewing survivors. And what they told her, well, it sums it up. One of the things I find amazing is when you ask them about the soldiers, did you see any soldiers? Did you see any authority on your way that would help you? There's one answer from a woman that I can never forget. She, she told me, yeah, we saw them. When we were in on the boat, they flew over us. <laughs> These people don't really expect any help from the authorities. By Saturday morning, Wes and his dad had been picked up by the helicopters run by the Dyke Advisory Group, the South African mercenaries, along with Adrian's body. Yeah, it was the hardest thing ever. When I walked around to get into the chopper, my brother's body was there and not covered. The security guard that had been with them had managed to make his way through the bush back to his village. But Nick and Naraj, they were trapped. And their luck, well, it was about to turn for a moment at least. So eventually, you know, the sun came up and we heard talking. I mean, literally like three or four metres away. Voices, but it sounded friendly voices, you know. And we'd obviously, we'd landed up next to family of people. We couldn't call it a village because they didn't have anywhere to live. We could hear ladies and men and an older guy. And we thought, you know, what do we do? You know, we're not going to get any closer to being rescued if we just hide out there. So we decided, okay, we're going to go and show ourselves. And the minute they saw us, I mean, they just bolted in all directions, except the men. I mean, they were just terrified of us. You know, that population is, I think, just so brutalised over years and years. I mean, we just made it very clear we we weren't trying to hurt anybody. And the old guy, who was obviously the head of the family, I mean, he literally took the shirt off his back and gave it to me. They sat us down and they had nothing. It wasn't even a formal village. They were living under the trees, you know probably running from the insurgents elsewhere in the region and are just hiding out. So they sat us down, they brought us water, they cooked us a, a wild pumpkin. I mean, this is a family who had nothing. And they were putting themselves at risk just by helping us, I think. Probably late 60s, early 70s. I mean, massage my hand, you know? So it's like literally the old man with a wet shirt and he's, you know, he's rinsing it out and he's massaging my hand because that's, that's, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. When Nick and Niraj were describing what this man did for them, I felt like I was listening to a parable. A man with nothing gives them the shirt from his own back, feeds them with what little he has. He guides them in the direction of safety. It's a rare moment in this story when things change pace, a moment of calm, peace oh, it was it was amazing I mean, uh, you know it's just incredible how out of something so ugly the day before you know something quite special and unique um, happened to us in the midst of that I mean he literally saved our lives but Nick and Niraj they couldn't just sit and wait if the insurgents found them they'd surely be killed already there were reports of foreign contractors being beheaded they needed to try to catch the attention of the aircraft overhead. So we spent most of Saturday trying to get the attention of the choppers and the spotter plane so we could see the choppers engaging with the the militants, the 
the Mozambican choppers were up and down there as well. But they were just too far away for us to get their attention. You know, it was a good, by then, probably four kilometers, I think. And how were you trying to get their attention? My partner tried to reflect his watch. We had a, a dish we'd found that we were eating breakfast out of and tried to, you know, get some reflection on the sun. But, yeah, it just wasn't working. <laughs> it was too far away. In fact, Nick, who's been piecing together what happened to him ever since those days in March, shared a picture with me on WhatsApp. It shows two crumpled pieces of paper, printouts, one with just Nick's face on it, printed across the whole page, him sort of awkwardly smiling, wearing a blue T-shirt, and the other is a grainy satellite image with a red square drawn around some buildings. It was sent to him by somebody who worked at the Dyke Advisory Group, and the caption reads... This is what we were given to locate you. Thumbs up emoji. How a pilot could spot him from that A4 printout, well, it was impossible. And the choppers, of course, they didn't stop for them. Exhausted and still wearing almost no clothes, Niraj's hands still purple and swollen, they made their way to a compound run by a construction company around a two-hour walk away. There, they found soldiers who had been separated from their unit. So we were there for Saturday night. And I mean, it was the most uncomfortable night. There was, you know, at any stage, people could come into that camp and, you know, attack us. So we we broke into these accommodation units and five of us sort of per room. I mean, it was so hot, you know, there was no air conditioning. Tori, Nick's partner, knew none of this. She got a call from Nick's daughter asking her to fly out to Johannesburg from the UK. Saturday morning, Jade said to me, can you get here? And I was like, yes, I can. And I flew on Saturday night. I didn't know if he was, I didn't know if I was going to a funeral or a reunion. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation, and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode. Out in the bush, Nick and Niraj had made the decision to follow the soldiers, to walk with them back to a fungi where the total compound was. But to do this, they'd need to walk straight through Palmer, or what was left of it. A final pilgrimage or a suicide mission? Nick wasn't sure. So these eight soldiers and ourselves left, walked straight down the main road of Palmer. The bank's generator was still running, the lights were still on, we could have gone and drawn cash from the ATM. It was quite surreal. <laughs> you know, there was just the sort of the leftovers of the attack of the last three days. It was 
There were not, not a lot of dead bodies, but there were dead bodies that we saw and some dead animals because I think most of the attack was further down the road towards all of the public buildings and we were up at the, the other end. We were just following them. I mean, we knew the area very well, but we let them take the lead. The Mozambican military choppers then spotted us, these two big high Russian helicopters that they have. And we got their attention and they came much lower and they circled us, I don't know, 40 minutes and didn't pick us up. They sent in a little troop carrier thing, also circled us, didn't pick us up. So we thought, you know, maybe they want us to get into a clearer area. You know, maybe they're worried about an ambush or something. So we walking up this dirt road to try and get to the open tar area. This guy steps out from behind one of the shacks and just opens fire on us. And I mean, we were just running for our lives and the bullets were flying past and going through the shacks again next to us. And we got split up. So the five of the army guys that had guns were in the front. We didn't, we never saw them again. What Nick didn't know at this time was that all around him, the only force airlifting civilians was DAG. The Mozambican helicopters had allegedly flown once, been shot at and never flew again. In the military's absence, DAG rescued 240 people in total. Videos and photographs shared with me show DAG helicopters filled with women and children, women crying into the crooks of their arms, young men looking wide-eyed at the camera. In a vacuum of leadership, the mercenaries stepped in. They were contracted, paid, to provide air assets, not to launch a humanitarian rescue. And so it came as a surprise when just two months after the attack, Amnesty International, one of the world's leading human rights organisations, published a report. It said that there had been, quote, blatant racism in the rescue effort. They claimed that the hotel manager, Timothy Roberts, known as Robbie, and DAG had prioritised the safety of white contractors over local black people. In an earlier report, published before the attack in March, Amnesty also accused DAG of war crimes. I haven't investigated those earlier allegations, but I did ask everyone I spoke to, over 20 people, for this report about that accusation of racism. I would like to hear what you think about the Amnesty report. And that question over who they rescued come about just to pick up on that suggested that the rescue attempt by dag was racist and the thing is no one i spoke to supported the amnesty account i spoke to three survivors from the amarula who weren't white who had been inside watching everything unfold in addition to human rights experts other survivors and humanitarian observers the question of privilege came up of course a nuanced point about who had access to phones who had leverage we know that white and foreign contractors were offered spaces on private chartered planes organized by the hotel but that they refused to take them Zenaida from Human Rights Watch talked about how local civilians knew that white contractors would have been more likely to be rescued, that their privilege might mean that somebody would come for them. Talking to people, for example, said we joined our white colleagues because we felt that there's always going to be help for them. Yeah, I, I got that kind of, of sentiment from people that when I saw my white colleagues run into that side, I said, well, let me join them. There will be always help for them because our government will not come for us, but their government will come for them. But what Amnesty is claiming is different. They were claiming racist intent. 
At another hotel nearby called the Palmer Residence, the owner confirmed that DAG helicopters rescued their hotel staff, all but one of whom were Mozambican, the other was Nigerian. DAG claims that of the 240 people that were rescued on the peninsula, only 12 were white and two of those were bodies, including Adrian Nels, that were recovered so that they could be returned to their families. Hi, David. Thanks so much for calling me back. Have you got 10 minutes now just to chat? When I asked them, Amnesty stood by their report. They said that despite evidence that the mercenaries did rescue black civilians at other locations, they were focused only on the Amarula. They're now calling for an independent investigation. Robbie, the hotel manager, was adamant when I spoke to him. He said that of the 24 people who were rescued on choppers, six were white, he believes one of them was Lebanese, and the rest were Mozambicans. He denied that race had played any part in the rescue, and he said simply that he had done what he could. He showed me a handwritten list of people full of Mozambican names that he said he had drawn up for when the choppers arrived. No one came to help us, except... And the only people that were prepared to come in to help us to take the people out mm. was Doug. No one else. Back in Palmer, Nick had just fled for his life for the third time. He was caught in what seemed like an unending nightmare. And I imagined it like a sort of warped, hideous game of Sonic the Hedgehog, Nick racing across this landscape. Every time he seems to level up and get closer to safety, another deadly obstacle is thrown in his way. And after being shot at again, he and Niraj raced back to the compound. Choppers were still circling us, never came down to pick us up. And yeah, it took us about 40 minutes. We got back to the WBHR camp. I mean, we were just shattered by then, starving, thirsty. And we thought, let's just regroup. I lay down on the, on the bed. They were close to giving up. At least Niraj, Nick's colleague, was still with him. He had the choppers again, and, and it, me in my head, I mean, it was, it's like another waste of time, you know, because they never see us. I heard the spotter play, and I just ran outside. And as I ran out, one of the dag choppers flew past me. I had the chopper getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And they saw me. And two, three minutes later, they were on the ground picking us up. I can see Nick telling me to come, 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 come. Can't tell you the relief. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. We just ran into the chopper, and both of us like burst out crying. Emotionally, we were finished. It was a miraculous survival. Two nights trapped in a hotel surrounded by insurgents. Two nights spent hiding in the bush. They were both in a bad way. Nick hadn't taken the medication that he needs for days. He was weak. Niraj's arm was swollen and useless. They had both contracted malaria. A blurry photo that Nick sent me shows them soon after they were rescued. Nick is topless, his jeans are ripped, he's holding a phone to his ear, and I imagine that he was calling Tori, finally able to tell her that he's safe. Niraj, his arm is in a rudimentary sling, and he's sitting, staring into space this small bottle of water at his feet. I was standing in the queue at Passport and my phone rang and it was a guy called Lee from the Foreign Office saying, he said to me, Tori, we've been tracking your plane. We've been waiting for you to get off so we can send you, you know the good news, but I need to send you proof of life. And he sent me a photo 
of Nick after he was rescued. Um, I can't tell you what that feels like. What was the photograph? It was him sitting with no shirt, looking a little bit shell-shocked, but smiling. Nick and Naraj were taken to the state capital, Pemba, and from there they were evacuated back to Johannesburg. Tori was waiting. And I waited for his kids and everyone to kind of have their quick moment of seeing him. And then I had longer with him. I walked in to that room and he was sitting on a bed wearing a pair of shorts and nothing else, nothing, no shoes. His feet were so scratched, no shirt. It was cold, he was wrapped in a blanket and he was just sitting there like looking broken, just broken. They were abandoned. And that makes me so fucking angry. I said earlier that parts of Nick's story felt to me like a parable, that in his story there was a moral to learn about resilience and integrity and, if you allow me to be a bit grand for a moment, a lesson about humanity. I think it's the same for the rest of this story. As I was grappling to understand what happened and piecing together this chaotic, brutal five days where people's memories conflict and where data, things like numbers and times and dates and deaths, are all jumbled, it struck me that, at its core, the story of what happened in Palmer is about value. It's about what we value and who. The discovery of gas in 2010 brought with it the promise of tens of billions of dollars to Mozambique. It made this poor, remote part of the country valuable. But that value was, it turns out, so limited. Limited to inside the walls of the Total compound and to the pockets of politicians. Enormous loans were taken out against future gas profits that now seem unlikely to ever fully materialise. These are loans that the Mozambican people will have to repay. The same people who were left to die as security forces fled and what few remained protected, not them, but the billion-dollar gas compound. It's why that detail about the Amarula Hotel being besieged not because of the foreign contractors, but for the local politician, is so important. Because it's a symbol of that fatal link between corruption, extremism and poverty. The insurgents' target was the face of the government, those who had forgotten them, those who had promised them jobs which had never materialised. And Total? Well, it might not surprise you to hear that they didn't answer any questions that I put to them. Total has now evacuated, and the longer the delay, the less likely the project will ever go ahead. The window for fossil fuels, after all, is closing, and perhaps so too is an era of gas and oil extraction, the end of a chapter where multinational companies can exploit the weaknesses of a poor state, take what they want, ignore the local population and just leave. Meanwhile, no one knows the true cost of the insurgency. More than 80 people are thought to have died in the attack in March, including 10 of Wesley's own staff who were beheaded in Palmer. In total, more than 730,000 people have been displaced in northern Mozambique since 2017. 
and attacks, smaller now, are still targeting civilians. Here's Zenaida Machado. From what we are seeing now, two months later, I think they're far from having the complete control of the town. Hassan, who survived the convoy, is now stuck, alone in Pemba. He doesn't know where his family is. He said that since the military arrived, nothing has changed. My life. I've got nothing to do. I'm just suffering. I've got nothing. I'm not with my family. I don't know where my family is. I don't know what I'll do. My family, I still don't know where they are. I'm alone in Pemba. But that armoured truck full of women and children that went first in the convoy, well, they made it to safety. They made it to the beach and they were rescued. Wes and his dad are now home in South Africa, but they still haven't been paid. He's chased the contractors that he was working for on the Total site, two of the biggest engineering companies in the world, but they won't even reply to his emails, he told me. He says he thinks he's got one more month before the company that he runs is just going to have to close. But he sees Janique, Adrian's wife, and Adrian's three kids a lot. They had a really beautiful funeral for him. They built a raft kind of like a Viking ship, covered it in messages of love and set it alight on the beach. And Janique, she asked me to say in this podcast, to have it on the record, that in one of Adrian's last ever messages to her, sent before he left in the convoy, he said, My babes, I love, love, love you and the kids forever. Please let them know that every day if I don't make it out of here. And she's doing just that. And Wes, he's in therapy. He's grieving, he's fragile, he's still coming to terms with what happened to him. And he's raising money in Adrian's name. I made him a promise that I will look after his family, yeah? I know he would do the same for me, so I'm trying to raise as much money as I can. Alfredo is also struggling to come to terms with the trauma, but he's carrying on. He was incredibly brave to speak to us. Niraj has just had surgery on his elbow and he's recovering well. And Nick, he's safe at home, reunited with his family, recovering happily back in the company of a rather grumpy-looking chihuahua that he clearly adores. Can you hear the dog yapping? (laughs) The only contact he's had from the Amarula Hotel since he fled has been chasing payment for his stay. He's ignoring the email. But he has a plan. He wants to return to Parma when it's safe. He wants to find the man who saved his life. My colleague had a GPS on his watch and he took the coordinates. So when it's safe, we're hoping to get back there. We're desperate to get back and to try and meet up with him and you know, do something to show our thanks and appreciation. What would you say to him? I don't know, just tell him the whole story of how we survived and just how much, just, I mean, what he did for us was just so incredible and brave on his part. I really hope we get to do that. I hope you do too. Yeah, Um, but it just shows you the, you know, how sad the situation is up there. That's just one family of ordinary people just trying to survive and the 
have been running for their lives for the last 18 months um, with no one to, to take care of them. Thanks for listening. This story was written and reported by me, Basha Cummings, produced by Matt Russell with additional reporting and fact-checking by Claudia Williams. Sound design is by Carla Patella, a podcast by Tortoise Studios. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could consider becoming a member of the newsroom that I work in. It's called Tortoise, and our members help shape the stories that we tell. To find out more, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend. And if you'd like, you can sign up with my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you for listening. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it and how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.